Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Rick Sweet, and this is the podcast segment of the show that is not broadcast on station KALA. Our guest for this 468th show is Ben Raines, award-winning environmental journalist and documentary filmmaker, who will be talking to us about his book, The Last Slave Ship, the true story of how Coltilda was found, her descendants, and an extraordinary reckoning. Our history buffs are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. Brett, you get to start us off this time. Gladly. So in the radio show, we talked a lot about the uh, tensions between uh, the people who came over on the Clotilda and formerly enslaved uh, African-Americans who had grew up here. Did any go back to their hometowns? In Africa, you mean? Yeah. yeah no, and that was their lifelong goal. Um, in fact, after they were uh, freed, the first thing they did, they had a group meeting, and they asked, um, or they assigned Cujo Lewis, the, who was the star of the book Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston, they asked him to go talk to Timothy Mayer, the steamboat captain who had paid for them to be brought here and enslave them, for to send them back home in a ship. Um, and, and he refused. Um, then they asked him for land. Uh, to, so they could build houses because, as they said, you, st- you stole us from our land. And he refused again. Um, they decided then that they had to, they were going to save up money to pay for passage for everyone home. Um, this is when Africatown was, hadn't yet been built, but several of them already had children that they had, they had uh, married during um, enslavement. And so they had families. And so they needed places to live. So they decided to pool their money and buy land, and that's how Africatown got started. They bought land from Timothy Mayer and the other plantation owners nearby who'd enslaved them, uh, and they built a community. You know, they were buying chunks of two or three acres at a time. So um, that meant that they never had enough money to get back to Africa. And, um, you know, Cujo, one of them said that he goes back to Africa every night in his dreams. Um, and so they never did make it back. But, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about yet was the incredible brutality of the Dahomey Empire. And it, it was built solely for 300 years on um, the industrialization of the slave trade and capturing so many people. So everyone in their villages, um, the way the Dahomey army operated when they attacked a village, and Cujo was from a walled village with big, you know, they, he was a warrior, trained as a warrior. They had guards and all kinds of stuff. But the Dahomeans marched with an army 50,000 strong and overwhelmed his village. Um, and so they, everyone between the ages of 12 and 30, they took. Everyone younger than 12 and older than 30, they killed on the spot. So, you know, I think at a certain point they may have felt in some, you know, I could imagine them feeling like, well, what is there to go back to? Everyone I know is dead. And if I go back, I might get captured by the Dahomeans all over again and sold back into slavery. So they never did make it back, but they all talked about that as a lifelong dream. Okay, Ed, do you have a question? Yes. Um, you talked before a little bit, Ben, about the uh, British having this anti-slaver um, patrol in the Atlantic. Um, the U.S. had expand- one as well. 
Oh, uh, well, then can you tell us about those? And particularly if a, if a slave ship, slaver ship was captured, um, what did they do with the captives? And if you've come, if you've been captured in Benin by this warring tribe, and I mean, what, that's the last well, place you want to go back to. they sent them to Liberia, to. actually. Um, they sent them to Liberia, <laughs> which was a made-up country that was for people to be repatriated to. Um, and, you know, some of the people from other ships um, that were captured, we know, went back there. They were sent there. But because the Clotilda people were never, um, you know, were not found that way, they appealed to different government agencies to, to get passage back to Africa, but they were not registered as slaves, <laughs> as ridiculous as that sounds. <laughs> so they essentially didn't exist. Um, but they, you know, that's what they did with people. They, they would take them back to this sort of neutral country. Um, and, and, but the slaving squadron was, was, you know, America was shamed into it by the British. Um, and there were enough of the ships out there in the slaving squadron that the Clotilda was chased four different times during its trip to Africa. And while there, Captain Foster writes about this in his journal, while there, um, he went ashore with 27 pounds of gold to purchase the people. And the Dahomans uh, stalled him for eight days. And he was put up in a really sumptuous hotel. He talked about how great the, the everything was, you know, drinks, food, all that. Um, but and he wrote that he was worried they were affecting his capture, that they were setting him up to be captured by the anti-slaving squadron, because they were known to sometimes double-cross people, where they would turn them over to the after they after someone had paid, they would turn them over to the British anti-slaving squadron and let them get captured, and then they would get all the captives back. And so he was worried about this already. The day they were loading the 110 people on the ship, they were supposed to be. He had paid for 125. Uh, they were loading them onto the ship, which involved giant canoes that they had to paddle out through the breakers um, and and then have them climb rope ladders up onto the ship. While this was going on, the lookout in the crow's nest spotted the um, steamships of the anti-slaving squadron coming uh, from the south of where the Clotilda was anchored at Ouida in, in Benin uh, to give chase. And so they left without the last boatload of, of captives they had paid for and ran put all the sails up and, and took off um, and barely outran the slaving squadron on the way home. Um, they almost got captured right there in Benin. Wow. <laughs> ben, what, uh, what happened to the captain of, of the uh, last slave ship? When, uh, was he ev eventually so, arrested? No, uh, and he did get arrested. Um, everyone got arrested, but everyone got off. So, you know, Timothy Mayer made this bet that he could do this, and he made it on the deck of the steamboat because the passengers on the boat were talking about another slave ship that had brought people in, and then the, the guy who did it had been arrested afterward. And it was called The Wanderer. And so it was being written about in the news all over the country. The New York Times was writing about it, the New York Tribune, and it, it happened in Georgia. So it was in national news. And so that's what they were talking about on Mayor Steamboat after dinner. You know, after dinner, they would go out and picture a fancy antebellum era steamboat. You know, it was very sumptuous. They would go out on the deck after dinner and smoke cigars and drink whiskey. And so there were some Yankee passengers on the ship, and they were talking about the Wanderer case, which was going on in trial right then. They were reading these updates every day. And so one of them said, well, I think they should hang a lot of them to scare anybody else off from doing this. And Timothy Mayer said, nonsense, they're going to hang nobody. I could do it myself and get away with it. And they made a bet that he could do it. 
bet a thousand dollars, which would be thirty thousand in today's money. So, you know, they they were they were doing this. Um, they were seeking the notoriety. Timothy Mayer and Captain Foster had both donated. They had another ship uh, called the Susan, and they donated it to this crazy um, guy that washed up in Mobile who. Uh, wanted to go take over um, Central American countries and turn them into slave states. And um, they gave him a ship to do this. Um, and and so, uh, you know, that's that was where their sympathies lay. So when they returned, when the Clotilda came back, they all got arrested within a week um, because it was so well known. They bragged about it everywhere. Two days after the Clotilda got back, the newspaper in Mobile ran an editorial congratulating whoever was behind the Clotilda returning with a cargo of slaves. And it knew there were 110, and it knew, the article reported they had been spirited up into the rest of Alabama on board steamboats. So, you know, it was right out there in the open. So Timothy Mayer gets arrested, and he goes to uh, before the judge, the U.S. District Judge, who happened to be one of his closest friends, so close that Timothy Mayer had named the first steamboat he built after the judge. It was called the Judge Johnson. So Judge Johnson, his close friend, did not recuse himself from the case. Instead, he turned Timothy Mayer loose and said, oh, you couldn't have done it. You were here in America the whole time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Foster was the only one who didn't get off immediately. And that was because Foster's crime was uh, bringing a ship back to port without stopping uh, at the tax office to be charged and have the cargo inspected. And then he couldn't produce his (laughs) ship. So he was here in America with no ship. And so they were they were going to charge him and fine him a thousand dollars, and he was supposed to go on trial. But Judge Johnson, every time Captain Foster's day in court came, Judge Johnson continued it because he was friends with Foster as well. And so this went on right up until the day the Civil War started, when uh, Judge Johnson um, threw out the case against Foster and switched teams. He became one of the first Confederate district judges. Um, and so nobody ever got charged with anything related to the Clotilda crime. Yeah, right. They got charged. Nobody ever was convicted of anything. Of course. Brett, you uh, have a quick question? No, oh, I just find it amusing that it's always tax evasion that Money ends talks. Up getting people in trouble. <laughs> Money talks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From Capone on down, you know. Yeah. Sure, you can break the law, but you leave out uh, government's cut and then they really get annoyed. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, so what should have been the punishment if they were found guilty and convicted? They should have been hung. Um, it, that, it was a hanging crime. It was a capital crime. And that's what happened um, to um, the fellow I mentioned that Abraham Lincoln hung. Um, had you know that he, he went on trial and he was hung. He was caught on his ship three weeks before the Clotilda made it safely back to America. So that very nearly was the fate of um, Timothy Mayer and the others, certainly Captain Foster, who was on the ship. Um, but, uh, you know, as I mentioned, that only happened one time, despite 50 years of illegal slaving and people being caught routinely. Okay, Ed, we've got like about two minutes. You got a quick one? I don't. You Sorry. Don't. You don't. Well, I, I have a quick one. Uh, what is right. what has happened to uh, Africatown, the plantation district in Mobile? What's happened to it? Africatown has been totally destroyed and uh, by environmental racism. Um, the 
the Mare family, because they still owned all the plantation land around the land they sold to the Africans, uh, began selling it to industry because it was right on the Mobile River. And so they built um, the largest paper mill in the world, looms over Africatown. There's a second paper mill that looms over Africatown. They're both shut down now, but for about 80 years, they were causing a staggering amount of pollution, tons of, Af- of uh, rare cancer deaths and stuff in Africatown. Um, and then the city of Mobile decided to build a gigantic uh, six-lane highway bridge um, over the river that came down in Africatown. And I've, the I've been bridge, through that. I've been on that several times, it, yes. So it's a very high bridge. I mean, it's 350 feet tall. The approaches to the bridge are a half mile each. And when you approach that bridge, when you were in Africatown, that, where that pavement is, all six lanes, that's where all the founders' cabins were. That's where Cujo Lewis's house was. That's where all the rest of them. And um, that's why the church and the cemetery are there. That was the heart of Africatown. So the city of Mobile built this bridge and um, took all that land and kicked all of the families out. Um, the descendants of Cujo Lewis and the others were living in those houses. Um, I have interviewed them. You know, And this happened in 1992. So they destroyed the cabins these Africans built in Africatown, the only community in America started by African, you know, and former slaves, um, and Mobile wiped it out. And they did it for um, a couple of reasons. They did it because they wanted to get the hazardous cargo on Interstate 10. They didn't want it to go through downtown Mobile anymore. They decided, let's just send it through downtown Africatown. So then that wiped out the commercial district because the highway also, that area was where all the businesses were. So they all disappeared. Today, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, Africatown had um, movie theaters, restaurants, pharmacists, grocery stores, dry cleaners, all kinds of businesses. Sure. Uh, today, there's not a single business in Africatown. Okay. The population has dropped from 12,000 to 2,000. All right. Well, And it's all about that highway and, and the rest of the environmental racism journal you know issues environmental justice issues okay we would like to thank our guests for this 468th show ben rains award-winning environmental journalist and documentary filmmaker who talked with us about his book the last slave ship the true story of how the clotilda was found her descendants and an extraordinary reckoning the history buffs for today's show were Brett Bernard and Ed Broders. You can listen to ROI as it's being broadcast on Friday nights on KALA HD2, 88.5 FM, and 106.1 FM in the Quad City region at 930. You can also listen to the show as it's being broadcast on TuneIn.com. Put KALA HD2 in the search box and look for ROI. Many of our previous recorded shows can be heard on SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find ROI shows. You can also find ROI on all your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.